gentlemen welcome back to stories out of time and space your sci-fi movie review podcast i'm scott weatherly one of your regular hosts and as usual i'm joined by julian darius julian how are you doing uh i'm doing awesomely because i'm about to talk about starship troopers how are you doing i'm good i'm i'm really looking forward to talking about this film um i'd forgotten how much fun this film was uh and also how sort of darkly satirical it was yeah i i had the, I had the same response i i thought uh um i i sort of remember i uh not being sure that i liked it the first time i saw it um mm. at least through most of it um and i'm always kind of trying to reconstruct uh how i sort of saw it for the first time and i think the first time all of the sort of campy elements the 90210 sort of uh uh, dynamic, you know, some of the, the bad dialogue, the coincidences, and then that it didn't have a proper ending. All of these things kind of irritated me. Um, although I was still charmed by a, a lot of it. And I'm like you, I'm a sucker for the um, RoboCop-esque sort of fake uh, uh, advertisements and TV programs that are in universe. Um, but ever since then, I've been the biggest fan of this movie. And like you, I'm just charmed through so much of it. Uh, I'm just delighted. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this came out in 1997. So I was sort of uh, in my sort of mid-teens by that point. And I remember seeing this. And the first time you see it, like, it was just sort of a kick-ass, gory, you know, sci-fi adventure. That's how I saw it and thought, oh, this is really good fun. This is it's really silly. Um, yeah. But as you say, when you come back and watch this, it's... Uh, as an adult, it's definitely got that sort of... It's a thematic sequel to RoboCop. You know, this mm-hmm. is really like Paul Verhoeven going back to that that sort of well. Um, and, and I think we'll definitely get into that. Um, I'll give a quick overview so everyone sort of knows exactly what we're talking about. So as you say, we're talking about Starship Troopers from 1997, directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Edward Newmere, uh, based on the book by Robert Heinlein, and starring Casper Van Dien, Denise Richards, Dina Mayer, Jake Busey, Neil Patrick Harris, Clancy Brown, Patrick Muldoon, Michael Ironside. So it's got a really sort of surprisingly stellar cast in there for a, as a B movie. Uh, the plot: In a future world, you can either be a citizen or a civilian. To be a citizen is to commit to military service. This gives you the right to vote and other privileges. Young Jock Johnny Rico decides to join up and do his time in the infantry. During his training, the Earth is attacked by an alien, bombardment and war is declared. These aliens are bugs, and Johnny and his friends are going to take the fight to them. Want to know more? Okay, so let's sort of get into this. Um, 
first thing first, the, the big thing actually on this is this sort of, before we even get to the bugs and the war, this future world fascinates me. And I think it's so subtly, um, I almost want to say, an, not anti-American, is it anti-American, I think? Something like that. In that it's set in Buenos Aires, which is, you know, incredibly South America. Yeah. Um, but everyone's incredibly American. As you said, sort of like 90210, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> which I, I feel I is love... intentional. Oh, I do too. And I mean, I love the fact that it's set in Buenos Aires uh, in the beginning, but um, you don't really know that. <laughs> like, you know, no. I, it's kind of like half an hour in or something. Uh, it's really when Buenos Aires is destroyed, for sure, that you're like, mm. oh, you know, Buenos Aires is gone. And it's like, you are all the whitest, most American kids <laughs> ever. You know, there's no indication that this is Buenos Aires. And, and maybe that's a kind of like, and I love that it's set in, in South America. That's amazing. But um, but it, I don't know if that's like a sort of, uh, you know, the McDonald'sification of, uh, you know, sort of cultural imperialism that, you know, in the future, America has just, you know, dominated <laughs> everywhere and everything just feels like uh, Beverly Hills. That's sort of how I've taken it. I almost took it as almost like American colonialism. Because um, mm-hmm. it's funny in the book, I, I actually go and ch- I had to go and check this. Uh, but in the book, it's not Johnny Rico; it's Juan Rico. Mm-hmm. So, although it's because it is set in Buenos Aires, or they come from Buenos Aires in the book, but he is Hispanic. Um, so I I don't know if if like yeah if that's almost like a subtle like kickback from Paul Verhoeven, you know, where, where maybe a producer or some of the studio gave him notes and was like, no no no, yeah. we need someone. We need someone, as you said, like 90210 perfect, but he's kept <laughs> it in Buenos Aires. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, and Denise Richards <laughs> lives there. Oh, f- fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, I just find that really interesting that it's sort of like you say, like Michael Einstein's working as a teacher down there. It's got all these sort of like, you know, Neil Patrick Harris, as you say, is like the whitest person like, possible. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the, the guy who plays Johnny Rico is, you know, also just like such a movie star looking guy um yes yeah i mean he is as square jawed as they come isn't he like you know square jaw blonde hair um like i i i feel like because of this is this is obviously based around this idea of propaganda like johnny mm-hmm. rico is is that he's almost like johnny soldier isn't he he is he's that mm-hmm. perfect sort of thing like you know uh and that's that's that must be intentional yeah i think so i mean i i think before we we go on, we should point out that um, the the novel by Robert Heinlein, you know, which uh, won lots of awards and uh, and whatnot, uh, incredibly influential, um, you know, sort of inspired, you know, one of my favorite uh, sci-fi novels, which The Forever War, as a kind of answer to it. Um, but the novel is absolutely a fascist novel. In the mm. novel... This is not a parody. This is not a satire, RoboCop style. That's all Verhoeven, right? The novel is filled with like 30-page passages in which, you know, his teacher in school is just lecturing about what it means to be a citizen. You get like a little bit of that in the first act of the movie, but that is just dead on. It's it's kind of like the closest you come in sci-fi to like... um, well, I mean, I guess Atlas Shrugged is sci-fi technically, but it, it, it's like the closest you get in a serious sci-fi novel to 
those kinds of like long rants and Atlas shrugged where it's like, mm-hmm. I get it. Ayn Rand, this is really what you believe for 60 pages, you know? Um, and Heinlein, you know, I mean, he really believed that and you know, it was inspired by Vietnam, but you know, it was basically pro Vietnam. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Cause again, like you say, it's, I, I, I'd, I'd be interested to see Heinlein's, uh, Opinion. If he was to ever see, I don't know if he said, when did did he die before or after this film? Is he still alive? I don't know. Actually, should have checked that. Um, because you can uh, read, you yeah, he you died in eighty eight. Re- oh, there you go. So we never. I'd love to see his opinion of this film because you can take that reading from this film. If you were to read it just dead straight, you know that that utopia or not utopia that dystopia that future world is the world he creates. I mean, um, uh, what's it? Ironside. Michael Ironside's character is, t- is the teacher, but like he does give some of those some of that speech, doesn't he, about what it, what it mm-hmm. is to be a citizen and you know that thing of defending the right and having this you know the the respect and everything to be able to vote and blah blah. It's all in there, and if you take it dead straight, like you go, oh my god, this is it's quite a right wing sort of um, you know setup. This whole sort of society, however, when it's being delivered by Michael Ironside. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In that sort of way, it comes across in that sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of like you know, oh, not well, not overly camp, but it's got that camp feel, hasn't it? That is obviously pure Verhoeven. Yeah, and, and but I think that as the movie goes on, um, you know, that is thoroughly deconstructed. I don't think you can get to mm. the end of this um, and still think that you're supposed to side with uh, the Michael Ironside character. Um, there's just so much where, I mean, you learn that, you know, Rico and, uh, you know, his squad have been, you know, sent on a suicide mission and they weren't told, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, even as he's signing up, you have the, the recruitment guy who's yeah. missing <laughs> yeah. both legs and one arm. And he says, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a great moment, but it, it can't be, but a great moment where he says, you know, the infantry made me the man I am today. <laughs> you know, yeah. And Rico just kind of, takes a step back and it's like what the what the hell have i signed up for yeah. i mean there's no way of seeing that stuff and thinking oh yeah you know i'm supposed to buy this whole fascist citizens just spiel i but i do like the way they drop things in though like you know because again it's sort of the the paul verhoven has this great way of world building that um you get he shows doesn't you know he shows don't tell i mean there's no one who sort of there's no way of there's no exposition dump, I suppose, of everyone sort of saying, and this is how the world works, and this is it, and this is it. Like, it's just told in drips and pieces. You know, mm-hmm. like, so you learn quite early on that in order to vote, you have to be a citizen. In order to be a citizen, you have to have done military service. So both of both Johnny Rico's parents are civilians. Mm-hmm. And you get that. And they obviously live quite comfortably, but they don't get the right to vote. Um, and then later on, there's a, a couple of other things. Like there's a shower scene later on where they're all talking about what they want to do after service. Yes. And someone says about, okay, well, I want to go into politics. It's easier if you've got a citizen. Someone else says, um, no, says you can only go into politics if you're a citizen. Someone else says, about, oh, I want to have children. It's easier if you've, you know, to get a, a, a license if you're a mm-hmm. citizen. And then right. there's all these little, there's all these little bits and pieces, and you're thinking, my God, like this, this world's like <laughs> crazy. There's some like amazingly sort of just little bits of information dripped in throughout the film. And then you obviously yeah, get I the commercials that. as well. Yeah, I love yeah, it. I love that. Uh, and I, I just think that's where Verhoeven really succeeds in this. Because obviously you, you get the return of the commercials as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. And uh, well, I mean, maybe we could talk about the structure a little because I mean, one of the things that fascinates me, um, I you know, I'm a kind of structuralist. I, I sort of mm. outline and dissect things in that way. Um, and one of the things that I love, I mean, there are a lot of things that I love about this movie, but one of the things that I really love is how much it goes off the rails. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, and I really love, because I'm kind of a structure guy, you know, I mean, I can't stand when, when movies, uh, are poorly structured and don't know what they're doing. Um, this, and, but I'm also like really delighted by screwing with structure. So like, I love from dusk till dawn, right. Where, Mm. you know, you get halfway through and it's like, yeah, we've been a really good serial killer movie. Yeah, yeah, but you know we're going another way, and you're, and then characters just start dying. This has some of that, where like the first act is high school, and I mean mm. I think that's the weakest portion, but that's sort of like very Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. It's still got some good stuff, but and then act two is like training, and it's like um, it's like uh, the Full Metal Jacket uh, sci fi version, you know, mm. um, and then act three is like the landing on Klandathu. Like, this should be the climax. You have landed yeah. on the Bugs planet. You're going to destroy them once and for all. Here's the climax. Um, and that kind of, like, ends with Rico killed and the total failure of the military mission. Um, and then then there's this fourth act as they're doing, you know, island hopping. You know, it's kind of... I've always seen it as a, you know, the island hopping thing in the Pacific. Um, you know, mm. Rajek's killed, you know, uh, and they're just on this planet P and, you know, then there's this fifth, fifth act where, you know, it's like, we're going back to P and they never go back to Klandathu. Like, you know, yeah. and, and by the end of it, all of the characters have been on this, uh, an arc, half of them are dead, uh, you know, or certainly, uh, you know, a, a decent amount. Um, and, you know, and you feel like, where you know where has this gone this has not followed the the traditional storytelling it's got no resolution um but except for the space between that fourth and fifth act every act you know because you're going into the big climax but every act is separated by a uh one of the tv sequences and it starts Mm. with one as well and then you kind of catch up with it halfway through the movie so you start with one and then you have this like nice pause between each act as Verhoeven, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, I, I like how, you know, Tarantino sometimes goes to uh, a black screen and you see like act two, you know, Don McHugh's mm. got a secret, you know, and it's just this nice kind of pause to say, we're going into this, this new section. And Verhoeven uses those TV sequences to give you that pause, except for between the fourth and fifth act. But I, I love the way, it's structured in this bizarre way. I mean, it's almost like, you know, uh, I mean, it's a kind of classic five act structure, but doesn't go where it's supposed to. Um, and intersperses these TV sequences almost as act breaks. Well, the, yeah, I, I do. It's good to have you. I never thought about the five act structure, but you, you're completely right. And um, I love the fact that those commercials as well, they sort of, like you say, they're a breather, but they give you information for the next act. You know, they're sort of like, oh, and mm-hmm. just just so you know, here's some information you're going to need to know, because um, you do get the thing of of what sort of things I'm thinking. You need to get to you, you get an advert about being psychic. Are you psychic? 
Do you have these feelings? <laughs> have you, you know, should you be applying to the military for testing? That sort of thing. Which I think is great because that's obviously gets called back because that's what Neil Patrick Harris's character is. He's he works in um, basically sort of like secret, like sort of military police, secret military police, and secret research. Um, and then uh, you get the information about the, how to kill the bugs, which is actually from Neil Patrick Harris. Where's the military? He's like, you know, yeah, you can shoot them, but they're about eighty-seven percent still lethal. So you've got to go for the brainstem, and that's when they, then they go to Clondathu, and you've got, you know, they're all trying to do that. Um, and then you get this sort of the supreme military leader who basically, after the Clondathu, you know, balls up, he has to step down, and you get the new person, right? And here's the new strategy, and that sort of, like, I say, fills up um, the last two acts. So yeah, I just love the fact they keep dropping these little bits and pieces in, but then you get the propaganda pieces as well about which I think must be between the, before the training when you got sort of like uh, the the soldiers are all lined up and it's sort of like I'm doing my you know I'm doing my bit <laughs> I'm doing my bit and then that little kid's head comes out and it's sort of like everyone laughs at him. Um, it's brilliant. I think it's so so, so good. Oh, yeah. um, but I also love the fact about those is that in um, in RoboCop. When they're done, they're done as commercials. You know, they are done mm-hmm. as they sell. Um, there's a, a board game called Nukem, um, and you know you've got the the SC or the S whatever it is SX six thousand the car, um, and you know all these things come back and they're fantastic. But this one is actually told as almost like online. Um, it's an online news system. It's almost like a state news thing because you know you constantly get that piece of that. Um, um, the the question is, do you want to know more? And there's a there's actually a mouse on the screen. You get to see a cursor, and it's like, do you want to know more? Press here. So it's right. almost like you know you, you are looking at a computer screen, which I think is fantastic because again, it's almost predicting that twenty four hour news cycle and having news just beamed at you constantly. Here's information. Here's information. Here's information. Um, so you know, I think Verhoeven was was sort of looking forward to that one. Um, which yeah, I think is so, so clever. And, and I think that, you know, uh, so much of this, um, you know, we were talking about the, the Michael Ironside character in the, in the beginning uh, and his speech, you know, he comes back. Uh, but so much of this is, has this layer of like a guide to recognizing fascism. Okay. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm an American, so I live in an openly fascist country at this point. Um <laughs> But uh, uh, not joking, um, but, you know, like you have so many sequences in this that, you know, t- you, you were talking about the predictive uh, nature of this film that, you know, people should have to watch this film and sort of recognize. Yeah. You know, when you have the kids stomping the uh, cockroaches, you know, which is a, a <laughs> yeah. brilliant, brilliant little thing. You know, I, I love these kids. You know, it's like these. Cockroaches are unrelated to the, the yeah. you know, intelligent space bugs that we're at war with. Um, but, uh, you know, it reminds me of, um, you know, under George W. Bush of Americans pouring French wine in the gutters, uh, you mm. know, uh, in protest because France wasn't down with invading Iraq. Um, you know, and, and we renamed, I mean, I remember going being in restaurants that, you know, had renamed french fries freedom fries you know as if like the french are like you know yeah we're we're that upset that you purchased that yeah. wine and disposed of it in such a crude way you know yeah. what what were you accomplishing this was so stupid and yet 
it has that same sort of like, oh, this feels good. We're stomping cockroaches. You know, let's film this and make this this patriotic display that's meaningless. Well, it same, it's so meaningless. It was, it was the same thing recently when you get um, the I can't remember his name, but the you know the, the black American football player that took a knee, and you know mm. there was a whole thing then, and obviously Kaepernick. Um, that's it, Kaepernick, and then Nike backed him up. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, that sort of thing. So, no, we're not going to drop his sponsorship. We're going to back him up on this. And then you get the videos of people, like, burning their night trainers and burning all mm-hmm. this other sort of, like, night merchandise and the Kaepernick tops. And you sort of think, I don't think Nike are going to be too worried because you're still paid for, <laughs> you're sort of, you're still paid for it. <laughs> and it's just like, it's the same ridiculousness, isn't it? That lunacy of sort of, like, what I don't know what you think you're achieving by doing this. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I say the same. You know, like we have. You know, why the why the fuck do we play the national anthem at a football game? What the (laughs) hell does this have to do with anything? But you know, I mean, look honestly, I haven't except for briefly after nine eleven, I haven't stood for the national anthem since I was a teenager. Um, and and uh, you know because I don't, it's creepy and fascist, and Mm. you know it's compulsory. And people stand, and so I'll sit and be stared at. And uh, but I am not going to stand and pledge my allegiance on command, you know. Um, but it has nothing to do with this. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I've been to concerts where they play the national anthem beforehand. It's like, you know, um, what is going on here? Uh, this is really mm. creepy. Uh, this is really fascistic. This should set off warning lights. Um, and then, you know, it's like almost a parody. Everybody says, you know, you're, you're, uh, you served. Well, thank you for your service. You know, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, it's nice that somebody serves, right? But how about you tell me what you did? Okay. Cause there are a lot of people who did not do anything useful. Okay. If, yeah. if what you did was, you know, kill some kids in Iraq, I'm not too happy. Now there were a lot of people who, you know, built houses and schools and, and did great work in Iraq too. Even if it was dumb that we were there, those people aren't bad, but we have this like, you know, uh, way in which uh, we lionize uh, soldiers and yet we treat soldiers like crap. They don't, you know, they don't have health care. They don't have, you know, proper uh, vet services. They have PTSD that, you know, they can't get treatment for. They wind up killing themselves and we don't care. But meanwhile, we're busy talking about how great they are. And in the same way, Starship Troopers constantly has this, you know, this cult of patriotism and, you know, loves its soldiers and this very, you know, culture of service and treats their soldiers as disposable cannon fodder. Well, that's you know, that's the bit I, I think is is the most impressive. This is exactly that, is that it, it does do that. It? It, sort of, it has this moment where throughout that first couple of acts, you know, there's this, there is this notion of lionizing, as you say, and raising up this militaristic idea, this thing of becoming a citizen, like, you know, do your service, commit your time to becoming a, a, a citizen, whether it be in the, the, the space force, which you now have, um, <laughs> God. Uh, God. Or, you know, in, in the infantry or whatever it is, but then you get the right to vote and all this other stuff. <clears throat> but then when they drop them on Klandathu, like, it's like something out of World War One. It's literally oh, yeah. like, over the trenches you go, oh, you're going to get absolutely slaughtered. And then the response is, yeah, we made a mistake, uh, but we're going to go try something different. Not, not okay, we're really sorry. It was more sort of like, you know, when they, when they um, 
the Supreme General or whatever it is that he's doing sort of steps down. Like the way he does it, it's apology, but it's not apology for the loss of life. It's an apology mm-hmm. to sort of like, oh, I've let society down. Sorry, we're going to try something else now. Throw more people at it or something. It's 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 an odd sort of like say, it's almost like in order to become a citizen, you you gain rights, but you for a period you lose yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I do have questions about like during the training. It seems like you can just walk away, right? Um, mm. you know, you could just go down washout lane, you know, uh, which is kind of a cliche from, you know, these military training movies. Um, but, you know, so that would seem to, um, you know, they're not trapped once they're, they're in the military. And yet, yeah, I mean, for me, once you hit that third act, uh, and I mean, even like the training is good, the training starts getting brutal, but, um, you still have. Uh, a bit of silliness, you know, there's like, all right, you know, I'm going to do a pattern B jump, you know, remember the football days, you know, we're going to do that. I mean, kind of like silly 90210 kind of elements there. But you're right, suddenly you get to Klandathu. And, you know, one of the things that I love so much about it isn't just the brutality of that war and the depiction of how disposable everybody is. But one of the things that's so important, and I mean, and this is, this means so much to me personally, is understanding that who lives or who dies in war is 99% chance. And anybody who's been in combat will say this, you know, you know, you see your buddy next to you get hit in the head, you know, I mean, storming Normandy, you, you know, if you're going up Normandy beach, the Nazis are machine gunning you, you know, you're going to die. There's no amount of skill. If you're the first off the boat, that's going to save you. Um, And who lives and who dies is luck. And the idea that, like, oh, you know, this guy's the best soldier or, you know, all of this personal pride has to be stripped away by that. And you have to recognize in seeing that, no, you know, even if you're the best soldier in the world, you're made of flesh. And if the bug happens to shoot you, you know, you're you're done. Yeah. Well, I think and that stands out in this film because, I mean, this film creates like a crew. You have like a group of people that, you know, that's who's going to be there at the, you know, the beginning. You you get like Casper Van Dien and Denise Richards are almost, I would say, are safe throughout this film. Like, you know, they're going to be safe. But then you get other characters, like you know, um, Dinah, uh, Dina Mayer's uh, uh, Diz. Mm-hmm. You get Jake Busey. Neil Patrick Harris, Clancy Brown, you've got all these people sort of crop up and you sort of they set up this sort of crew that you think, all oh, right, that's who we're gonna follow through this film. That's who's important. Mm-hmm. And I say for for the most part it is. But then like you say, by that fourth act, like you say, people start to die that you're a bit like, Oh, yeah, I didn't see that coming. That was uh that's not supposed to happen. Like Diz is clearly set up as you know his love interest, and there's been this right. love triangle between it and I think more as a you know, as I'm a bit more sort of older and probably a bit wiser now. Like I see that the moment, the moment her and and Rico sort of do connect, you sort of go, yeah, you're dead meat. Like that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's like the but, horror movie where you know the teenagers have sex and you're like, oh, <laughs> you're gonna die. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, but then like, when I watched this, when I was younger and watched this, and I was like, oh right, they've got to get this great. And then she gets killed, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, all right, well she's dead. And then they obviously bring back Michael Ironside, like I say, it's his character. And then he like he's killed, but but no, he's like, he's injured. And then Rico kills him because that's what <laughs> yeah. he's supposed to do. 
Yeah. And I'm just like, wait, wait a minute. Who am I supposed to follow now? Like, I don't know. Like, because by the end of the film, the, the big the big finale is that they go into the caves to save uh, Denise Richards' character and, and some of the dude, and they've got this thing called the Brain Bug. But the people that go in is is Casper Van Dien and just some people. <laughs> yeah. But all of a sudden you're like, oh, they're in it now. And like you say, it's almost like whoever's next to you is the person that's important. Like they're the ones that are going to come with you. Um, yeah, but I, I I really love that. I mean, I mm. to this day, I mean, I find, um, you know, two things that you, you talked about that you know I I really love. I I think the way Dizzy is killed. It's still mm. heartbreaking to me, you know, it's like, mm. and, and you know, I mean, one thing I don't like is that he apparently has sex with Carmen once kind of off screen before he goes into the military and he really does it for her. Uh, and then he has sex with Dizzy once and it's like, I have the dick of death, you know, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of irritates me. But, you know, seeing Dizzy just impaled in slow motion by a random mm. attack, you know, it's just. I mean, the randomness of it, um, it really drives home for me, even though, as you say, you know, being older now, we know, you know, this is coming. Um, it really drives home that point of sort of how violent and random uh, this is and that there's no glory. Um, and and the way uh, Michael Ironside's character dies, you know, I mean, uh, there's a little bit of, you know, the Paul Verhoeven RoboCop kind of cliche, like, you know, permission to die sort of like rico you know what you're you gotta do <laughs> yeah. kind of over the top stuff <laughs> but I, you know it sets up i mean i love at the end seeing rico you know it's like you know rico's roughnecks and and he's parodying he's parodying you know you want to live forever which is you know yeah. such a great line and you know he having joined up for a girl knowing the military is does not care about infantry you know botched uh completely you know military intelligence botched the whole clandathu operation he has mm. nonetheless he has become that soldier um and yes. he had his uh he had his mentor and he has become you know i love that whole business with uh the new troops coming in and they say we're the old guys <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> I, I just think it's brilliant uh and, and so you have these deaths that are surprising and, and you're right it's just sort of feels like it's going off the rails but by the end it all of that stuff drives home for me the things that i really love about this movie i i agree because i do think it's that sort of like you say that no one in this film because they're bugs no one in this film is like you know uh killed by an identified enemy do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. in some of the films, you'd have sort of like, you know, oh yeah, there's the sniper and you sort of, you know, they'll they'll set up a villain and they'll set, you know, even in films like Saving Private Ryan or other films, there's always that sort of, there'll be a moment where you have like an identified human uh, nemesis for even a part. Like I even think of the part in, in Saving Private Ryan where they're pinned down by a sniper Um and that you know they're running around like that sniper is sort of like he's, you know he's, he's their enemy sort of like you get to see him in in the tower and stuff, and it becomes like a you know a, a purposeful thing. In this, like they are just bugs. Like you know, yes, he gets slightly different versions of the bugs, and you got the brain bug, and you get the, the, their military infantry bug. But like there is no, oh yeah, it's that one. You know, there's nothing where they go, oh that's the bug there with specific markings that's going to come back later, mm -hmm. and you're going to have mm -hmm. that nemesis showdown. No, there's none of that. It's just <laughs> sort of like. 
no, there's just a wave of them, and it's sort of. I just find that really in- interesting that like they don't care. There is no um, emotion involved in this. There's no nothing personal. It's just you are the enemy, and I'm going to destroy you. Yeah, and I think you're touching on something that that is. I mean, that's a great point about. You know, it's not, you know, usually you see even in movies where like you're facing off against sharks, it's like there's that one with the strange markings that you're going to see again. Right. Just to give you the this adversary. But, you know, the idea of the faceless enemy, um, you know, we were talking about Star Wars uh, before we started the show. And, you know, you think about the stormtroopers as kind of quintessential faceless enemies Um, Mm. and they're human. Uh, but you're taught not to care about them, right? You're taught they're yeah. disposable and they're horrible shots. Um, mm. And obviously <laughs> all of those movies, uh, you know, I mean, same thing with like, you know, G.I. Joe. I mean, you know, where you have faceless or Cobra officers. I mean, all of these franchises um, and even, you know, in real life, like, you know, Black Hawk Down, you know, um, mm. you watch that movie and, you know, it's like, oh, well, they're not white. We're just going to gun down like 400 people with machine guns yeah. and they don't care. They're just going to keep charging us, you know, and you think that can't be right. You know, um, yeah. we're, we're sort of trained by these movies, which are, you know, in which are ultimately fascist in, in the training that they're giving us to objectify the other right to objectify yes. the enemy and so here's a movie that has the ultimate objectification of the enemy um where not they're insects right um it's you know that hence it's easy to to have the kids stopping on the cockroaches right and as you said outside of that brain bug uh at the end there really is no there's no personality to these insects there's no anything it is the easiest opponent to objectify. Um, mm. and, and I think that especially when Buenos Aires is destroyed, I, I feel a sense of, you know, yeah, the only good bug is a dead bug. Screw that. Mm. Uh, I feel that well up inside me, that, that post 9-11, like, let's get that. Let's burn some shit to the ground, right? I feel yeah. that. And, and that's a human response. And, and so the movie kind of sets up the bugs, the, the enemy, as the ultimate sort of faceless other. But by the end, you realize, oh, wait a minute. The bugs have a society. They have a brain yeah. bug, right? You know, yeah. and the humans are, you know, the human infantry might have faces, but they are just as disposable. And mm. we're kind of, you know, we're kind of the bad guys here. Um, or at least they're no good guys. Um it really takes that whole faceless enemy dynamic and turns it on its head for me. Well, uh, that's one of the interesting things about this is is exactly that that you say that there is no there's no good good guy in this. Like you know, yes, you, your your protagonists are are human and that's who you're following. But I say when they drop the information about why this thing has happened, you find out that a bunch of colonists have gone off and tried to set up. A base or a home on I think it's on Clandathu. Is it on Clandathu? Oh, it's near Clandathu. They're like intruding on the uh, bug territory. Yeah, yeah. And so they were wiped out. And then this, so that's sort of like you know that's setting them up as saying, okay, well they're the enemy. Sort of like you know we tried to we tried to set up a colony there and they killed all these people. And then you sort of go, okay, um, 
so what so what they're doing is they're defending their territory then I'm still not entirely sure that they're wrong, but you know they're they're, they're more basic than this. And like you say, so then you sort of think: was well, is, is the attack on? I, I can't remember what what, ins, what instigates the attack on Buenos Aires or on, on Earth that causes the thing on Buenos Aires. But it's it always feels a bit like it feels like you know Vietnam, doesn't it? Like you say, it's that thing of like oh, okay, well, I, I understand why this bit's happened, but it doesn't doesn't feel like it's fully propelled by good intentions. Do you know what I mean? Or even, oh. say, America and Afghanistan, or, or even like, you know, the British going into, going far back as like the British in South Africa and all that sort of stuff. It's, uh... Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's problematic. And I, I think that, I mean, you know, one of I, I've got a few problems with the film. Um, and, and one of them is that, I, you know, like I love uh, seeing the the dead Mormon missionaries in that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, TV sequence or computer sequence. But, you know, one of my problems with the film is that you don't get a sense of like, how many planets have we colonized? <laughs> you know, and when you see the yeah. uh, you see like a chart of the Milky Way and you're like, Clendathy's on the other end of the Milky Way. Yeah. Have we colonized the whole of our galaxy, basically? And we're now in like we we in Starship Troopers in this film seem to have colonized a greater percentage of the galaxy than the Federation has in next generation. And yet you have no (laughs) sense of that, right? Uh, At all. Um, But, you know, so I think that's a weakness of the film, but yeah, that's kind of like drips and drabs. Like you get more and more kind of hints like, Oh yeah, we were kind of dicks and obviously Mm. we vaporize bugs like crazy it's hard to say who fired the first shot, but, you know, or if that even matters, but, you know, they're vaporizing bugs like crazy and the bugs are, uh, they're defending, they're hurling uh, asteroids, right? Mm. Which is another thing that I love because despite the lack of uh, depiction of a a human space uh, colony, that is absolutely responsible science fiction, right? Why Mm. should I bother... um, you know, sending a, a, a fleet to attack Earth, there are all these objects, hook an ion, ion drive onto them for almost yeah. no energy. You can hurl the planet uh, demolishing uh, asteroids at uh, uh, inhabited, it'll take a long time to arrive, but um, that's absolutely responsible sci-fi. Yeah, and I, I like the fact that they, they are kept as almost like um, they've got a society, but they're always depicted as that sort of underdeveloped. To say underdeveloped sounds really cruel, but do you know what I mean? They, they are sort <laughs> of like the the to be underestimated at least, and it does make me think of sort of like you know every country that's tried to invade Afghanistan, whether it be Russia or America <laughs> or, or even the British. Like you know, again, it's that thing of like well, they must be less than us because they live in a desert and then they go and try and take them on. You go, oh, no, no, they, they will happily <laughs> defend themselves and keep us entrenched in there for, for years. Um, and it feels, I think, isn't it, sort of, you know, they, they constantly refer to them as, as the bugs and say sort of uh, that they're just animals and, you know, killing them off is, is the best thing to do. And it's constantly sort of degrading them down to that lowest common denominator so people sort of see them in that sense. Um which again is is a really interesting thing that when I when I, when we sort of this film was coming up for us to talk about, I started to look online at reviews and and some of the talking points around it. And as you say, when I first saw this film, I I very much saw it as a sort of like you know as, as a daft fun action film, and it's it's you know it, it can be read that way, and you can enjoy it in that way. 
and as I've sort of you know grown and sort of understand it more as a satire and stuff, but there are people that really, like, really haven't got that. You know, they <laughs> really are sort of like railing against this film. The sort of like, it's really stupid. I don't understand why those adverts are in it. I don't get why this is happening. I don't get why that's happening. You know, why does so and so die and all this other stuff? And you sort of think, I'm. I think you. Ironically, I'm going to suggest that you're probably the people <laughs> that this people <laughs> this film is actually railing on. <laughs> Um, cause, cause this is, you know, th- this people, um, it's obviously a wider society in, in, uh, in the, the future. Cause it's meant to be set 5,000 years in the future, whatever. It, it may be the fact that, you know, the supreme leader of this society says make earth great again. I don't know, but there's, there's definitely sort of like, you know, th- this film is poking fun at, I would suggest, you know, those diehard, um, jingoistic Republicans, isn't it? That sort of like, but they're the ones that probably won't understand that they're the ones that are being poked fun at. Yeah, that's quite possible. I, I mean, one of the most, one of the most depressing things in life is the for me is the extent to which other people, and including myself. I mean, I'm not free of it. I have a mammalian brain, um, mm. but that people are fundamentally authoritarian. Um, mm. you know, the way in which, um, you know, you put somebody in a, in a, in a suit, uh, and people just respect authority. They'll kill for you literally, uh, in these psychological experiments. And it is really depressing when you think of like, uh, Rambo, you know, that's not supposed to be a story about how, uh, war is awesome, <laughs> you know, and he's such a badass, you know, um, you know, people, people, I mean, these are the same people who, like, you know, you watch RoboCop. I mean, RoboCop, you think, how can anyone watch RoboCop and think, this is good? I mean, he's going through <laughs> hell, right? You know, he hates being RoboCop. This is not fun at all. And people are like, yeah, I want to be RoboCop. RoboCop's badass. You know, <laughs> no, no. There, there is this way in which all of these movies and all of these franchises kind of get almost inevitably dumbed down to their um, most fascist possibility, you know, if you mm. will, over time. Um, and how, uh, you know, all of the original sort of nuance is lost. Oh, and this franchise is no different because this film's got several sequels, and uh, including an animated sequel. And they all do that. Like, by yeah. the, even, by, even by the second film, all that nuance has gone and it has just become like an action adventure in space and you know like you say it just it just becomes what the people thought the first one was i mean at least with robocop 2 they're trying for some of that that sort of nuance you know with the with the oh yeah uh they they they, they try for it but yeah in the sequels to this film they just don't like this this, it's ridiculous um because I think you know, they, 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 there's so much in this film that sort of like i could um the imagery of some of this as well i mean even the design, because in in the original novel, the way that the soldiers are described is is in sort of like battle suits, I think, sort of mm-hmm. like you know, uh, in sort of heavy suits and stuff. And they've like drilled me- them down. Suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're in yeah. sort of, which, understandably, like they said, oh, we can't do that. I'm sure there'd be a budgetary restraint on that. Sure. But I also think there's no coincidence to me that these troopers in this have a very similar look to the colonial marines of Aliens. Yes. 
in, you know, and, and to me, it's sort of it's it's that similar, um, and they all sort of harken back to that sort of like GI, you know, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea, that era of soldier. They sort of you know they always try and sort of bring it back to that sort of look. I think that sort of stripped down. The helmets always looks very similar, mm. sort of like you know, the sci-fi, the design and stuff. But there's a very sort of clear image of when soldiering was best. I think. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like there's this era of sort of the greatest generation, sort of like you know, sort of World War Two, sort of the probably the early seventies, late sixties, um, and I just find that that I just thought that was really interesting. That sort of that's the the look they've gone for as well. They're very clean cut, you know. They're not as they are now carrying like masses of baggage around and huge belts with pouches on and that sort of stuff. It's like it's a very clean cut. They've got a couple of things and they're gone, yeah, and that's it. But that's a very good observation. I mean, my I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. And my initial response to that is um, that this is, you know, for Hoven uh, is European. Um, I, I've seen most of his, I forget, is he Dutch? Dutch, um, yes. Okay. And, um, but this is an American film made primarily in these days for American audiences. You know, the, the foreign... Mm percentage of the the box office wasn't as as big as it is today um and i always think that you know there is this odd way in which um i mean even in the 90s uh you know america has always been shockingly insecure for a global uh hegemonic powerhouse you know mm-hmm. um, i mean in the 80s it was like japan's buying us you know we're, we're not going to yeah. uh you know japan's gonna own washington dc in five years you know we're always so insecure but you know so despite having all this power um you know one of the things that i that i like about my country is the idea of uh forming a more perfect union and looking forward and yet mm. the, we we lionize World War II, um, mm. you know, in the same way that, you know, um, I mean, the, the Brits have their own um, lionization of, you know, Churchill and and, you know, the Blitz and all of this. For us, it wasn't violence on the home front. I mean, there was no Buenos Aires, you know, of World War II. But we're very conscious. I mean, even to the degree of lying about it, because we ignore how many Russians died fighting the Nazis. Um, But we are very proud of that era. And, you know, that is kind of the era in which, oh, that was the war that took America Mm. from, you know, a, you know, a a relevant country, but, but, you know, not one of the top 10 you had to worry about um, to the global superpower that dominated everything. Mm. Um, so for Americans, World War II is the classic war. It's the ultimate good war, right? We're up against Nazis, yeah. you know. I mean, there's no debating like, yeah, Saddam Hussein's kind of a bastard, but, you know, is it better without him or not? You know, all of that ambiguity is gone, right? It's just Hitler and, you know, Japanese beheading soldiers on B- POWs on beaches. So, I mean, I think that iconography is so wired into the American brain. Mm. Oh, it's the same in Britain. I mean, you know, we've definitely still got that. We still refer to it as sort of like, you know, the blitz mentality, that sort of like, you know, you're supposed to club together and help each other out. And 
you know, um, I've heard it recently, unfortunately, because of the situation we are in with, you know, our conservative government and, and Brexit. We we will still shout down Germany um, with a chance of two world wars and one World Cup, um, <laughs> God. because we because we think that raises us up. Just note that in 1918 and in 1945 we beat them, uh, and then actually in 1966 we beat them in a football game. Um, <laughs> not that we've had anything apparently since you know since 1966. <laughs> Um, which is ludicrous and is one of the daftest things I think this country says. But it's the same thing. It's this sort of lionising of like, we were great at one point, but even by chanting that thing, what you're acknowledging is we used to be great, but now we're shit. (laughs) Because there's clearly not something we can do now. Uh, And uh, yeah, I just find that that it's a similar thing, I suppose. Right. No, I I think it is. And, and, you know, I mean, and I think that as America enters its its sort of uh, twilight period, as you know, we know, you know, people can resist it, people can fight it, but we know, you know, America is not going to have this level be the the number one economy forever. You know, in fact, mm. we're already behind Europe if you consider the EU uh, a single country, which I wish it would be. Um, you know, but. Uh, but, uh, you know, we are sort of entering that period where we're, you know, watching the fall of empire. Um, mm. And I think Starship Troopers uh, reflects that. And it reflects, um, you know, I don't I don't know that it's a coincidence that it looks back on, you know, sort of like these these, you know, World War One and World War Two just sort of tactics that are supposed to be the highlight of, uh, you know, you said the greatest generation, right? I mean, what bullshit, mm. you know, that's a marketing <laughs> ploy for a book, uh, you know, I mean, and, and it's not to say that there wasn't great bravery and, and that people didn't uh, have a blitz mentality, as you say, you know, people did their part here too. I mean, people didn't complain as they were shuffled off to, to fight and die. And now they surely would. Um, that's not to say that everything was bad but surely it's not that everything was good and that these were uh people fighting and dying uh in the best ways and for the best reasons there were a lot of mistakes um and so so i think it's important to sort of deconstruct this uh lionization this idea that yeah we were great then um and maybe we can't be again because we we lionize the past well, I think, yeah, and I think, you know, one of those things is sort of, um, I, I even go back you know, to the end of the film. So like I said, the end of the fact is that sort of they eventually catch a brain bug. And this goes back to that sort of insecurity, I think, that, you know, um, Rico and his small cohort saves Denise Richards. And it's sort of like that's the hero story for them. And it's, it's, it's very, you know, it's very good. But then when they get out. Um, they find that a brain bug has been captured. It's actually been captured by Clancy Brown, who was um, formerly Johnny Rico's drill sergeant and uh, somehow mm-hmm. got himself busted down to private so that he can be out in the field, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually think is quite a cool moment because I think Clancy Brown's actually really good in this. Um, but the thing is, it's, it's that thing of like, when they drag it out and they drag out this brain bug, Oh, and yeah. you have Neil Patrick. Neil Patrick Harris is there, and he sort of puts his hand on it, and he declares to all the soldiers around, "It's afraid." And again, everybody cheers. It's like yes. 
And all I could think of is this is the same as like when, you know, the bodies of sort of like Mussolini or Hitler or Colonel Gaddafi or, you know, all those dictators and all those sort of leaders gets rolled out and gets a pommel in or whatever. It's that thing of a need to humiliate and defile the enemy, isn't it? To sort of, again, to belittle them, to bring them down, to show that they are scared of the might of this other military force. And in this case, sort of like, you know, the Earth Force or whatever. And again, this is one of those things that never occurred to me before until I watched it this time. And I was like, that ending is actually really harrowing. <laughs> I agree. Um, no, I mean, it's it's painful. I, I And I love, I mean, it's painful knowing even knowing what you were about to say, uh, sort of recalling this, you know, it's afraid. And then he repeats it, you know, it's afraid, you know, and mm. everybody cheers this sense of this is our victory in essence is projecting our might and making, you know, this brain bug who, you know, is intelligent. It's a military strategist, you know, um, and we're, we're going to study this. This is a great uh, advancement, but the bugs have a culture. But as you, I mean, there's something just absolutely harrowing, absolutely uh, horrific to me about cheering for its fear. You know, we have mm. made you feel fear and feel scared for your life. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, that's it's that thing, and sort of, you know, watching this now, uh, it it made me weirdly it, it, it brought back an image into my mind of a newspaper from um way back when to the early 2000s when um afghanistan everything was first invaded and it just said on it, it was a couple of like um you know the, the chinook or whatever helicopters they are entering and blowing the fuck out of something and it just says shock and awe mm-hmm. and that was the phrase wasn't it it was this thing of like yeah. We are the most powerful military might on the face of the planet. And it wasn't just America. This was America and Britain and Canada and France and all these people. And it was like, shock and awe. We're basically going to go in and blow the crap out of them. And then within a couple of years, all of a sudden, shock and awe changes to hearts and minds. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Now that that we've, we've burned your village down, we'd like to offer you some goodies. Yeah, it, it, and it just it it was watching this that really made me sort of think like this is the shock and awe of this. This is sort of like you know the thousands of troops, the thousands of infantry, the you know the the intergalactic spaceships with cannons on and all that sort of stuff, um, and that's your shock and awe. But you are never going to get hearts and minds in this scenario mm-hmm. because they will always always see the bugs as beneath them, no matter what they learn. They will always be beneath them, um, and it was just that. Uh, yeah, it just. I just really quite vividly just that newspaper front page, shock and awe, and I was like, "That's what th- this this film to me." Although it was depicting, you know, I'm sure it was riffing on every war that's gone before it. You know, sort of like Af- you know what they call it, um, you know, Middle East Gulf War One and. And uh, all this other sort of stuff, and you know the Falklands Islands and everything else, but it seems to me to be more relevant, you know, as we've gone forwards. Um, yeah, I, I kept thinking the same thing, and I kept thinking like, uh, you know, that the way in which I see this movie as kind of like a, a guide to recognizing fascism. You know, yeah. don't do these things, right? When you see. Yeah. You know, all of these little things, right? It's not just the big things of let's go to war and objectify the enemy. 
It's all of the little cultural things that lead up to that, uh, that create a climate in which um, people's fears can be mobilized, um, you know, uh, to, you know, I mean, look, we're, we're in a world in which uh, the Western countries and, and even non-Western countries are presently dealing with a rise of nationalism that mm-hmm. is quite fascistic, uh, openly so in most cases, and uh, built on fear of immigrants and fear of the other. Uh, fear of invading hordes that will somehow change or contaminate our culture, uh, you know, who are supposedly not willing to work, who are, you know, faceless others. Um, Mm. And what's really scary to me is that um, many people hold these views while knowing Hispanics, knowing Muslims, Oh, they think, oh, well, they're not talking about my, my, my kid's football coach. You know, they're talking mm. about those other people, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and yeah. then they come and arrest the football coach. And you think, well, <laughs> I, I never thought voting for Trump would lead to this. What did you think, man? There's this disconnect in which people are able to, you know, say things like, well, I believe that all life is sacred and uh, and life in Afghanistan, a life in Afghanistan is worth as much as. Uh, a life anywhere and then turn on to the TV and say, yeah, carpet bomb the, the fucks, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, what's going on? It's just, That's that authoritarian it's impulse. Well, it's the same in this country. I mean, there's, um, you know, there are many sort of uh, right wing pundits in America that, you know, I, I'm well aware of. And in this country, we've got, you know, some similar um, individuals. And there's, there's an individual called Katie Hopkins who is one of the worst examples of this bullshit. But I saw her recently, you know, uh, tweet something that someone else had sort of retweeted and commented back to her based on how to do one. But hers was sort of, it was basically sort of like um, having to go at someone else on Twitter about something that something uh, declared about a, a rapper has recently declared that Britain is fundamentally racist. And I, I sort of tend to agree and sort of, you know, in a, almost in a casual way that we let it slide. But she sort of was like, well, it should be Brit, you know, stop your moaning because it should be Britain for British people. And I was thinking <laughs> the ridiculousness of that statement in, mm-hmm. in, you know, throughout history. And you're thinking, did did India th- think India for Indian people when we marched in and conquered it? Did, did parts of Africa think Africa for African people when we basically went in and killed thousands of them? And then you go back even further and you sort of think, but we're not actually even British anymore because, you know, we were populated by Vikings and Anglo-Saxons and Gauls and all this other mishmash of everything else that came before. So do you know what? The lunacy of what you're saying is so ridiculous. It's sort of like, it's this, it's this weird notion. And it's with the same with this, isn't it? I mean, granted, these are two very different species. It's the humans versus the bugs, but to, to give you that extreme, but it's exactly the same thing as like, you know, that's how some of these people view other people is that they are insects. And, you know, we've seen it in, in the past. And if we are to learn the lessons of the past, just look at the Nazi and um, fascistic propaganda, the anti-Semitic propaganda of Nazi Germany or Italy. Um, and that sort of part of how, you know, how they describe the Jews and sort of, 
there were comments in them being rats and cockroaches and that sort of thing. It was all there. Right. Um, absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a brilliant and and vitally important point, right? I mean, that you that there is a history of saying they are rats, they are animals, yeah. they are insects. And this is literalized is. in this movie, right? It's literalized, but at the same time, this movie does a good job of deconstructing that they're just yeah, thoughtless yeah. bugs, right? Yeah, and that's you know, so you could put uh, any a, any nominal, you know, um, lesser country as an enemy in that point in history. You know, mm-hmm. you think of Britain and you know the British Empire going off and colonizing parts of Africa. Uh, or India, or you know, parts of the Middle East. We had very, very similar thoughts about how those people then. You know, the Zulu warriors. Um, you know, it's funny when you watch things like, like the film Zulu now. Mm-hmm. Of you know, yes, a small band standing up against a, um, you know, that 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 huge Zulu tribe, and you have sort of like Michael Caine, sort of like you know, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes, and all that. But then you sort of now have to question. What, what what were you doing there in the first place? <laughs> right, you know you 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 were there to kill them and to colonize their land. So you know it's 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 a it becomes a difficult question. But it's, it is that, that in this the bugs are representative, and you know I think well, maybe I... this film needs to be revisited in in that fashion because I don't think people do view this film in that fashion anymore. Well, I think that's that's horrific to me to think that anyone is watching this and, and going rah 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 kick kick that yeah. fuck ass, you know. I mean, and, and you're supposed to feel that a little, but you're also supposed to understand that that's a problematic reaction. And I and I think that's mm. that's such that's so important when we talk about recognizing authoritarianism and and recognizing fascism and 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 building a, up a, a sort of antibodies to these this thing that you have to go through it and you have to recognize that, yes, I have an authoritarian impulse. I, you know, it is very easy, um, you know, to, to think, Hey, you know, they look, uh, a, a country that harbored, uh, you know, the, the people who hit us on nine 11. Yeah. I'm not going to shed many tears for people in that country. Right. At mm. the same time, most of them are not, had no involvement in this. You know, these are these are the dictators, you know, who come in and force them to, uh, you know, uh, hide women's hair and, and, and all of this sort of thing. You know, by the way, they all sell porn the second uh, the Taliban leave. You know, they, there's no, <laughs> you know, real commitment to this. Um, but they're they're being bossed around, too. And, and I think that, I mean, the other thing, even even more than all of that, I mean, you know, the importance, this movie sort of trains you to feel that. You can feel hostility and rah-rah, but also understand, yeah, there's not an end to that. And part mm. of that dynamic is sort of recognizing nobody cares how this war started, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's these odd bits of dialogue about these colonies encroaching on the bug, but it doesn't really matter. There's no, there's no exploration of how it started. Um, and there's no ending. And we get that final mm. sequence that promises, you know, we will keep fighting and we will win. And it almost, you know, like the first time I saw it, I thought, well, first of all, 
all these characters are dead who weren't, yeah. you know, aren't supposed to be dead. Um, I mean, the landing, the invasion of Clandathu, the bug's home planet, happens halfway through the movie, and then they retreat and never go back. Um, yeah. And so there's this promise, you know, it almost feels like, yeah, uh, like, uh, you know, when you, you mentioned that the um, uh, drill sergeant has, you know, has sort of captured the bug. That's happened off screen. Um, mm. And Rico has kind of basically abandoned his platoon and gone on this, <laughs> this personal mission. And, and it's worked out, but he is not the hero of the final uh, of the final scene. And the final scene is then turns into about uh, into being about uh, it's afraid, right? Which is mm. horrifying. And then you get this military propaganda, and it's not at all clear that we're going to win. Right? And it's yeah. not at all clear that the army has any desire to win. Um, the it seems as if we it doesn't matter how the war started. It really doesn't matter whether the war finishes and. And I don't think that they really want it to finish. It seems as well, if the war is really a machine that, yes, you know, it's a military industrial complex that just grinds these people up and society organizes around, but actually right and wrong or accomplishing anything is really secondary. Well, I think that's a really good point because one of the things that sort of is abundantly clear from this film is it's a militaristic centered society, you know, to, be, to become a citizen, you have to go and do military service. In order to do military service, well, you've got to do some sort of service. And in order to do service, you've almost got to have a war. So you're right. It's almost like this war comes along against the bugs. It's almost like for, for the you know the, those in charge, it's perfect. It's like, okay, brilliant. More people, get them into, you know, we can get them into doing service and we can conscript them or you know, they'll sign up or do whatever. And we continue this sort of like to churn this meat grinder. Um, but also we hang these benefits on it as well. That sort of says, well, if you do this, you know, you get these benefits, you can go into politics, you can have children, you can vote. Da, da, da. Um, I, I just think that's just, that's the sort of the thing. Like what happens in a society when there are no, there is no war, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, cause that, and that sort of gets into this thing then I suppose of, well, are they then out there sort of like policing the colonies? Are they policing this wider expanse into space? Uh, and that's, I suppose, a different story that's never really covered. But I'd be interested to see what they do in, in what we consider sort of like, you know, in quotation marks, peacetime. Yeah, or if they're capable of having peacetime. I mean, mm. it's, you know, one would imagine that, I mean, first of all, societies, you could say, were created or maintained historically uh, to wage war, right? I mean, mm. tribes, you put a tribe together in part because, I mean, yes, there's uh, economies of scale and, you know, specification of tasks, but one of the central functions of society is to protect from the tribe over there, right? Um, yeah, safety in numbers. Right. And and so we when we look at modern nation states, um you know, it is amazing when you think about, if you count all of the attacks and skirmishes that, that really are wars. I mean, my country has had something like a hundred in, you know, just, you know, 200 years. I mean, and we don't even remember most of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have the, you know, uh, 
the the shores of Tripoli. Well, we, you know, invaded Tripoli, you know. <laughs> when was that? You know, that's not part of a war. We don't even remember this. Um, we, we don't even remember half of our, our armed conflicts. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we're especially special in that respect, but that that constantly feeding the machine is needed to especially after World War II, maintained a standing military. Um, mm. You know, and of course, my country's military is, you know, the, the next 10, 12 countries combined. Um, I don't think there's another country on the, the face of this planet that has two aircraft carriers, and we have 12. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's just an absurd <laughs> scale. Uh, and you look at the way that that affects the entire economy. Um you know, of military bases, of um, firms that provide weapons, that provide uh, planes. And we end up fighting about like, you know, every time we fight about welfare, I say, translate that into fighter jets for me. You know, Mm. we're fighting over, you know, whether we should feed people and the cost of feeding people is a tenth of one fighter jet. Okay. Bugger off. Right. You know, uh, this is dumb. But, you know, it seems to me that societies. You know, and, and certainly the more fascistic the society, the more it requires sort of a constant war and a constant sort of enemy. Um, and I don't know that this society on Earth and Starship Troopers, this government could survive very long if it really had peace. This whole structure of who's mm. a citizen and who's not, you know, you would have to think would kind of start to fall apart. Yeah, uh, you know, it it's clear that, that that this is Robert Heinlein's sort of, I said, philosophy, and and I haven't read the book. I've read sort of like bits and pieces on notes on it, but you know, does did he expand this universe beyond the single book, or is it just a, is it just a one off? Yeah, to my knowledge, it's just a one off. Because mm. it would be interesting that this is the kind of book that I think would be interesting if someone had that scope to do this as a series and sort of see how that society could sort of rise and fall and, and that sort of thing that would be quite interesting yeah apparently there, there isn't any any sequel uh to the to the original novel um mm. and i and i think that um there's been some sort of like other media like with comics and stuff uh and you know animation but i'm sure that they are all to one degree or another influenced by this this film um, which yeah has had uh, you know obviously when you visualize Starship Troopers you visualize this and I'm sure that at some point they'll remake Starship Troopers and try to put you know I know like Starship Troopers three you know the we're I'm talking about the sort of like direct to video sequels that are really mm-hmm. bad has the mechs in it and I've seen those and I I don't even remember them honestly uh, the sequels. Um, but I'm sure when they redo it, they'll put the mechs in and and it'll be a little more faithful to the novel. Yeah, it makes me wonder if they'd be brave enough to sort of cause to make the satire or you know keep that satire. Or would they, like say, or would they keep it faithful to the novel and and just have it as a, a fascistic sort of future society? I don't know. I don't know who yeah. I don't know if Hollywood would be brave enough to do that these days, but yeah. So, so really, that, that's a, we've sort of really sort of talked the hell out of, of Starship Troopers. <laughs> Before we get there, so what what's your final thoughts on on Starship Troopers and um, 
you know, aiming at some of the listeners that, that this, I mean, this came out in 97, so over 20 years ago, um, to whether or not people should go back and watch the 1997 Starship Troopers. Well, I, I have a list of things that, that I absolutely love about this movie. Um, um, I think people should should go back and see it because uh, it does have some hokey elements. It does have uh, some things like this. It does have, I mean, when when um, the when the meteor that hits uh, the asteroid that hits Buenos Aires, um, it just happens to be on a, a, a direct course for <laughs> the, the ship. I mean, there's stuff like that that you just think, oh god. But yeah. um, overall, I mean, I love the the parody. I love the satire. I love the sort of echo future echoes of of things that we have seen since then i love that probably more than any other film this depicts a sci-fi war in a Mm. realistic way uh that it i love the brutality i mean once the war starts it's so brutal and and i love seeing the ships being blasted from the surface of clandathu where they're falling Mm. apart and they're ripping into each other and you're like I'd never seen anything like this in, in you know, yeah. Star Wars or Star Trek. It's just so brutal and people are being ripped apart by the bugs and war is ugly and the aliens look alien. You know, they're not just like um, guys with face paint. Uh, you know, I, I love all of that. Uh, I love the, the, even though it sort of starts as 90210, when they all go off into the service, they go into different divisions. And I love the sort of like hot, and it starts to work really well, this sort of high-low narrative that Shakespeare uses where you see like the pilots are sort of high, literally, right? I mean, they're privileged yeah. and the infantry are disposable and going through a very different set of experiences. And, you know, you see the pilots smiling and running around and sort of playing as the <laughs> infantry is just going through brutal hell. Um you know, so I, I love that. I love that. I mean, I would say even more than um, than, you know, most Judge Dread comics, which is, you know, famous for being about somebody who's supposed to be the bad guy. This movie. So this movie knows none of these people are good guys. There are no yeah. there are no good guys and bad guys uh, uh, in this movie. And I and finally, I love how it goes off the narrative rails, how. It's it's not um, it doesn't have the convenient twist that I often find annoying in in film where it's like, ha ha, surprise, you know, you were in somebody's head all along. You know, I have two identities. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. That's not a good twist. This movie has surprises, but they're legitimate surprises that make sense within the world where characters just die and all the Mm. things that you think are going to happen don't happen. And you don't even have an end to the war. Um, all of this is just challenging and delightful and and so enjoyable uh, and, and sticks in my head. Uh, and if anyone mentions Starship Troopers, my first response is, oh, I love that movie. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Uh, yeah. What about, sorry to ramble on. What, what about no, no, no. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same. I mean, uh, um Arrow Video recently released um, a Robocop special edition, Um, you know, sort of loaded with all the special features and sort of several versions of the film and all that sort of stuff. And 
Robocop gets all this praise for being this sort of like icon of the 80s for both its satire of corporate America, but also for creating such an iconic um, sort of like, you know, sci-fi character in Robocop. And it, you know, it gets raised up as this sort of film. And I think it's fantastic. I, I, I will talk Robocop all day. But, you know, Verhoeven took that mentality and he applied it somewhere else. Where sort of like he, he lampoons uh, 80s yuppie culture in, in corporate America, you know, in Robocop, he takes it and applies it to that sort of jingoistic military um, notions in, in Starship Troopers. And I think he does it incredibly successfully. I, I think this film is a really good sort of satire and lampooning of that sort of, you know, that, as you said, like that need for war, um, you know, that constant need to have an enemy, to have another. Uh, and I think especially in the 90s when really things, were, you know, yes, we had the first Gulf War, but overall it was relatively peaceful and relatively quiet. There seems that there was a need to have another, uh, you know, this 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 enemy. Um and I think he just he just nails it, and you know we can talk all day about how this is a lampooning of American militaristic, um, you know, intentions around the world, but it can just as easily be applied to British um, in the same, you know, earlier in the twentieth century, late in the sort of nineteenth century. It's the same thing. It's cyclical. It's always the same way. Um, and I just think you know it, it's such a good way of looking at it, and people have just sort of written this off as a daft space. Um, action film, and I think that's a real shame. Um, I also think I like the fact that, like you say, that sort of it sets you up to to engage and uh, to follow a group of people, and then just starts basically blasting them all over the place. I mean, we talked about Dizzy's death. Um, not only is it sort of like you know, it's not so much out of nowhere, but it happens at a sort of a brutal moment. Like she dies ugly. Like let's not let's not let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. Like. She, when she dies, like it's not some sort of like Hollywood swooning moment of sort of like you know my heart will go on shit. It's like no, no, she is drenched in blood. She is scared. She's crying. Like it, you know, she does a good job of it. Like you know, this film doesn't pull its punches, and I think it's been misinterpreted for years and almost forgotten. I think people forget about this film at times. And I think that's a real shame. Um, and I definitely think it should be re, re, revisited. I'll also say I watched this on Blu-ray and it looks great. <laughs> um, for 20 years on, like the special effects and stuff, like, yeah, there's, still, there's some moments when it's it looks hokey and a bit iffy, but also there's some practical effects in this and they are, they're absolutely really, really good. So it still looks good, uh, but I definitely think it's worth revisiting in a sort of a... Um, with with a new lens, I think is is the best way to look at it. Yeah, that, that's all very well said, Scott. As usual, um, I, you know, I think this is one of my when I make lists of uh, my top ten sci fi films. This is usually mm. in there. Um, that's how much I love. I mean, Robocop gets in there. I love Robocop mm. too, and 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 I I love Verhoeven. I you know even his late stuff like uh, Swart Book, uh, Black Book is is really good. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It, it breaks my heart that people sort of have forgotten this or would, would see this as just a rah-rah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, action movie. Yeah, so I, I think we're, we're both really in agreement aren't we, that this, this film definitely needs to be to be seen. So, you know, for viewers, we've talked about it. We didn't go into massive detail about the plot, mainly because the plot, for the most part, is irrelevant. It's just a really great film. Uh, go and see it. 
just just check it out. You can probably pick this up on on DVD or Blu-ray pretty cheap, um, or find it online somewhere. Just go give it a revisit and let us know what you think. You know, are we right with this film? Do you think we've misinterpreted it? Do you think we're miles off? Do you think this film is just a rah-rah uh, action film? Um, I'll be fascinated to find out what what you think. So, you know, contact us at, at Pod Time Space um, and uh, let us know. But uh, what we do, what are we doing next? We are doing Primer. So oh, next wow. time, yeah, the next episode we are doing Primer. Now I will admit I've never seen this, but I sort of know the concept. So th- this is this is one of yours, uh, Julian. So mm. um, time travel. We're going to be looking at time travel and really the next one. Well, and uh, also sort of uh, low budget. I mean, sort of the opposite mm. of. I mean, Starship Troopers. Um, had a, I mean, it was a hundred million dollar budget in '97, right? I mean, that was, that's uh, yeah, big you know, deal. Equivalent, yeah, it was a huge, and it, that was on the strength of Verhoeven. Um, but uh, yeah, Primer, very small, very very low budget. I mean, shot for uh, something like uh, thirty thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we're going to to low budget, independent, I assume, independent sci-fi. Mm-hmm next that's exciting that's gonna be a bit of change of course so yeah so next time then guys we'll be talking primer uh which i'm assuming you'll be able to find um on a number of streamer services and online so if, if you want to to watch it before we talk it uh go out and find it and, and uh, we will be talking about that uh next episode uh but julian thank you very much it's been fantastic thank you scott and uh i always done, enjoy doing this and and i hope that people uh reach out and uh communicate with us and uh, follow along and hopefully go on the journey with us and watch these films. Yes. Cause it, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think we'll, when we sort of look back on this season, there's uh, there's definitely some things I've learned. Um, but in the meantime, thank you very much. And guys, we shall see you again soon.